Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, we are going to do something that we don't usually do on this show. Thanks to my ever-advancing editing prowess, we're just going to have a really free-flowing conversation. And our guest is somebody who says that when it comes to the school culture wars, we're doing it all wrong. And by we, I guess I would say that I'm lumping us into that kind of coalition of public school advocates who feel like what schools do is being unfairly characterized or misrepresented by the right. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes Johan Neem, our guest, so interesting and provocative and worth having a conversation with, is that he is sympathetic uh, to the same things we are sympathetic to. Young people, open dialogue, free taxpayer-supported public education, uh, you know, we're in support of the same kinds of ultimate outcomes. But he thinks that the kind of advocacy that I think you and I are so often supportive of, right, like manning the ramparts kinds of advocacy uh, are perhaps misguided. Uh, and I, I don't entirely agree with him, but he has forced me to think about that sort of stuff in a way that I think is really useful, even if I end up in the same place that I was before, right? And that's always the sign of really productive conversation is that you don't know where you're going to end up at the end of it. Well, we had a really interesting conversation and it was also a somewhat lengthy one. We could not stop peppering him with questions and he could not stop answering them. So I'm going to suggest that we just cue up Johan Neem and let the fun begin. All right, let's do it. Our special guest, as you've already heard, is Johan Neem. He's a professor of history at Western Washington University, the author of several books, one of which we will be talking about a lot. It's called Democracy's Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America. I can't say enough good things about it. But one of my favorite of Johan's writings is a piece he did for Brookings back in 2017. It was at a moment when the push for school privatization was really gaining steam. And Johan implored us to look back and consider why our democracy invested in public education in the first place. When I wrote that piece for Brookings and when I wrote my book on democracy schools, the biggest concern was a bipartisan commitment to privatization. And it was a bipartisan commitment to charters, school choice, and also to what I consider curricular privatization. The focus on the ends of schooling being the preparation of workers and losing the kind of human and civic aspects, as well as the social and integrative aspects of schooling. And so you saw a real diminishment of what we thought public schooling was for. And so it was privatization at all levels. And I started my book in part because I felt historians didn't have 
a response. You know, there was good work done by historians on the left, good work done by historians on the right. But if you read them, you were always led to the same conclusion, which is public schools were a mistake or they were so badly designed that there's nothing in there that we want to keep. And so I wanted to write a book that didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, recognizing how dirty the bathwater was, that some of the critiques from left and right were absolutely true. But did that make the whole project of public schooling suspect? Or do we not care about some of the goals and aspirations that were fundamental to the development of public schools? But there is a way in which that conversation seems quaint, given how angry we all are right now. A little more on Johan. He's an historian, obviously, which means we have two of them on the show today. And when he entered the field, it was after a decades-long period in which historians on the left and the right had been beating up on the public schools. Now, obviously, their critiques were very different, but both sides portrayed public education as a kind of unyielding colossus. When Johan started writing about public education, what struck him was how vulnerable it felt as an institution. Things felt fragile. You could imagine the end of the common schools project. You could imagine, and even more so today, I think, in some states like Ohio and Arizona, you could imagine a future where the public schools that we know won't exist any longer. And so suddenly this idea that these are unchanging, powerful institutions that could never be broken down didn't make sense to me. My fear was the opposite, that they're actually really fragile, that our commitment to them is quite contingent that with new technologies and policy options, they could go. Which led Johan to the past. He immersed himself in the earliest days of public education in the U.S. to try to understand how we came to have schools in the first place. Part of the story I try to tell is about the development of these common schools as they emerged out of the revolutionary decades. So we have to start the story in a world that doesn't have them. Once we start the story there, we can really move forward step by step and see a different process. We see a lot of grassroots activity at the local level. We see school building not being something that's just top down. We see the articulation of civic ideals that we need in a democracy, educated citizens. We see actually the emergence of a pretty radical egalitarian idea about self-culture, that in a democracy, and I think many of the people I write about would add in a Christian society, equality means giving all people access to the arts and sciences so they can actually look upon creation and with the richness that had once been reserved to the few who had access to the arts and sciences. So you have this real kind of humanistic element. And then you do have an argument about Americanization. And I think that what I say that's different about that is that we have to take the questions they were asking quite seriously. The story that Johan tells in Democracy Schools is about organizing. It's local. It's messy. It happens in fits and starts. And ultimately, education is transformed from being a private good that only the wealthy can afford to a public good because people start to believe in their local public schools. Part of this was practical. States didn't have bureaucracies. They couldn't just create schools by plopping them down in town after town. They had to actually rely on citizens coming together in school districts and having meetings and electing committee members. And the work had to be done locally. 
But the other thing I mean is that, you know, no matter how eloquent some of the great common school advocates are, you know, the Jeffersons or the Horace Manns or any of them, it was actually the public schools proving themselves on the ground. And as the public schools developed more stakeholders, as more kids went, being left out was harder for other parents. And as more parents sent their kids there, the more stakeholders you had, there developed a cycle on the ground of people who were invested in the public schools because their kids went there. What it means to me is that the way in which education went from being a private good to a public good was not because all Americans bought into some beautiful ideology about education and democracy and all that. I don't think they would completely dismiss that. But I think you care about your kid. If your child is in a school and that school is serving your child, you're going to want that school to succeed. You're going to invest over time, tax dollars, your volunteer energy, and you're going to help other people's children. I just want to add on to what you were saying there, Johan, because as somebody who has written about the emergence of teacher education over time or the emergence of tests and other kinds of assessments over time, as somebody who has written about the emergence of state bureaucracy, I feel like I am constantly trying to explain to people, no, it is not a factory model. They wished they could have dropped down a factory model. They wished that there was, you know, you hear this story about, you know, they went to Prussia, they saw what was happening there, they came back and they just created a system from scratch, maybe in their wildest dreams. But what was actually happening was they were saying, hey, local folks, you are required to tax yourselves and run schools. We really hope you do a good job. And at the end of the year, we want like some basic statistics. And you read annual reports from the Commissioner of Education for the United States. And it's just statistical tables because it's essentially a powerless office. And really what you learn looking at, again, things like the emergence of teacher education is that it's happening in fits and starts, in drips and drabs. It's happening in one place but not another. 20 years later, you're hearing the same kinds of calls for change that you were hearing 20 years earlier. And that kind of grassroots development, that kind of slow change over time, to me, is really evidence that there was no grand conspiracy to strip people of their rights or their identities, which is kind of what you hear from both the left and the right in the historiography, that actually this really was something driven from the bottom up, despite there being some mandates and some incentives from the top down. This is a tension that's both beautiful and frustrating for anyone who has a vision of what education should be in our society, which is to make it work, it has to be grounded in the life world and the civic world of actual citizens in a democracy. And they're not gonna want everything that you or I or anyone else wants. So you have the reformers saying, well, we have the perfect vision. And then you have citizens saying, yeah, but it costs too much or all they need is to read and write and then we're done with them. Why do they need to like learn about the beauties of the world or higher math or anything? They don't, right? They just need to get out there and farm, right? And you have tension and conflict, but if you didn't have that local participation, you wouldn't have been able to build the schools. And I think you wouldn't have been able to build the buy-in that education is a public good if you lose the people. Okay, so at this point, you may be wondering what all of this has to do with our present-day fights over public education and questions like whether we should even have public schools anymore. Well, the short answer is a lot. One of the major goals of those early common schools was to bring people together, whether they actually wanted to come together or not. 
social solidarity requires some kind of unity that we need to see ourselves as a people. And that requires some kind of American identity. And that doesn't mean the answers they provide in the 1830s and 40s are the right answers, but it means that the questions they were asking shouldn't and can't be if we want to maintain our democracy over time off the table. That we actually do need common schools to be common places where people of diverse backgrounds of all kinds come together, but somehow come out seeing themselves as fellow Americans. What I'm hearing from you, Johan, is an understanding of history that leads to a really pragmatic approach to educational reform and the politics of education in the present. And what listeners may not be aware of if they don't read the large output of essays and op-eds that you place all over the internet and in print publications insofar as they still exist, what they may not realize is that you are an advocate for an approach to public education that I think would frustrate people on both the right and the left. But I think listening to you right now, it's clear that it's rooted in a very pragmatic understanding of how public schools came to be. I'm wondering if you can just talk through that a little bit, because I think it's so interesting, and it's not something that we've really ever talked about on this show. Earlier I said one of the things that I was struck by, both in terms of living in the ed reform world than the rhetoric of the ed reform world in the 2000s, and also learning about the early 1800s, was how fragile an achievement public schools are. You know, we used to think, well, Americans agree on few public goods, but they'll always agree on public education. And I'm not actually convinced by that. If by public education, we mean the common schools that we have that are kind of universal neighborhood schools that all the people living within a certain area pay taxes for and go to, right? I think that vision is much more fragile. And I think it's fragile because it requires the people who live in that community to feel a sense of ownership over those public schools. That doesn't mean I'm against state standards or state legislation or upholding the rights of all peoples under the Constitution, but it means that there is a practical reality here, which is that what made this education, which is so many ways a private good. As a parent, I know I'm always caring about what the schools are doing for my child. Always, 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 right? And at the same time, as a citizen and as someone who studies education, I know the concern of the district and the concern of the state has to be all children. And the equality, educational opportunity, and even other forms of equity within the schools. So there's a tension always there that we all live in our own lives. If I'm not a stakeholder in my local schools, I don't want to pay taxes for them anymore. Which brings us to the present and why Johan is so concerned right now. The more broad segments of the population feel that they aren't represented in and by the public schools, the more we risk losing those schools and everything they do to privatization. So what concerns me about the privatization movement, whether it's school choice, whether it's the emergence of market like for-profit schools, whether it's charters, is that we'll slowly stop feeling that we are stakeholders in those public schools. And then those public schools will start to falter. And then some of the public goods that I think are there, the most important being equal access to a good education for all parents of all skin colors will be at risk. But I also think another public good that I deeply believe in, which is integration, the bringing together people from all economic, racial, religious backgrounds in common buildings will be at risk. 
And so this to me is the practical question. If we who advocate public schools or the people who are running the public schools, administrators, teachers, school boards, alienate large parts of the public and convince them to embrace other forms for paying for school, the privatization agenda that both of you write about, that precedes this moment, then they'll become stakeholders in a different kind of system, a market-based system of education. And this very contingent, very fragile, and very important public good we've developed, this will be lost. Now, we need to pause here momentarily and dwell upon what precisely Johan means by privatization, because it goes beyond what we usually talk about, at least on this show. If there is a, you know, an essence to what I'm concerned about, it's privatization. And that's privatization on multiple levels. It's privatization that allows me to think the interests of my child are paramount over all other children. It's privatization that means that schools are provided on a market model rather than a civic public good model. It's privatization of the curriculum. This was my critique of the Common Core, is that it really emphasized the values of business. So it's the idea that public schools are primarily for the creation of workers. And I say primarily because I'm not saying there is no economic or worker-related goods coming out of public schools. I'm saying the reduction of our public schooling to this one thing is problematic. Or think about the role that schools play in acculturating the next generation. It's among the most important things schools do, and it is precisely the thing that we cannot agree on at all right now. Johan wants to make sure that we understand that that acculturation or socialization we can't stop fighting about is itself a public good. We are actually talking about public goods, right? Which is the public good of how we engage in the socialization of the next generation. And socialization is one of the fundamental public goods provided by a public school education historically. And we are disagreeing deeply as Americans, although I would wager that we're disagreeing more deeply between partisans on the left and the right than as Americans. I think there's more consensus among Americans about this than there is in the rhetoric we see. But regardless, there's a deep disagreement that we see in the library wars and the CRT wars over how we socialize the next generation, which is one of the deepest and most personal, but also one of the most political public goods out there. And so I think those are the kinds of conflicts. How do we ensure the publicness of public schools is sustained when both parents and business have an incentive in the private goods? How do we sort of deal with this fact that we so deeply disagree about the acculturation of the next generation? I think is really essential to moving forward if we're just salvage the Common Schools Project. There's one more thing that you need to understand about Johan to make sense of the particular argument that he's making. He's an immigrant, shaped by American schools. And that experience has made him very aware of the role that schools play in transmitting a shared culture. You know, I was born in India. I grew up here as an immigrant. And to me, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, the public schools being open to me and being open not just in the sense that I had the right to go there as someone who lived in a particular district, but open in the sense that they actually opened American culture to me. They didn't say to me, this is for white people, this is for brown people, this is for Christian people. They didn't say Halloween is for some Americans and not you. You know, they said, welcome to this country. These are things we do here. And, you know, there are some boundaries we have to be aware of. So we're not evangelizing Christianity, for example. 
But we don't have to therefore pretend that Christmas is not the most popular holiday in the country and never put up a snowflake or a Christmas tree, you know? Where in my district today, teachers are told, try not to even wear green and red, you know, because it's offensive. And I'm like, that's so welcoming, actually, to have the Christmas season open to all. And yes, there will always be some people who feel left out in a diverse society, and all societies are diverse. There's nothing you can do about that except be aware, be respectful, create spaces that are safe for those people. But if we abandon any premise that there's something in common, that we are Americans, then we've already lost the argument. And we've also lost the justification in some ways of public schooling. Now, if you happen to be one of the many historians who listens to this program, you are likely already familiar with the somewhat contrarian argument that Johan has been making about our school culture wars. If you aren't, then get reading. But allow me to distill his case down to a couple of urgent questions. What role do public schools play in forging a shared American identity? And how do we hold ourselves together in a diverse society that feels to be pulling apart at the seams? As Johan sees it, neither the left nor the right really has an answer for those questions. Democrats and Republicans agree students in public schools need to learn the bad stuff. They want students to learn the bad stuff. Where they disagree, I think, is that what I hear sometimes coming out of the education world is the bad stuff is all that matters. You know, we want to talk about the role of slaveholding in the American Revolution, but we don't want to talk about Lexington Green and the fact that these people were not trying to defend slavery when the shot heard around the world happened, right? And we don't want to even talk about the shot heard around the world because that sounds like we're praising the country. And so I think what's lost there is a sort of hope that America can be good and bad and that we all belong to all these stories. And I think the extreme right is responding to that with this sense, not entirely incorrectly, that I think many on the left are embarrassed about America. They think they only should teach the bad stuff and that somehow that's truth. There's a lot of bad stuff that we need to know about our history to be thoughtful and aware and capable citizens, to be honest with ourselves. But honesty doesn't mean everything is bad. If you look at polls, most Americans want to learn the good and the bad, and they think there is good and bad. They want Americans to feel pride about their country, and they want them to feel shame. And if one side only claims pride and the other side only claims shame, that doesn't make any sense to me. But it also leads to the kind of extreme politics we're having, where we're told either you should always feel shame or you should always feel pride. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. And it's also not healthy. And it alienates too many people to maintain the public support we need for public schools. There is a particular story that gets told about the school culture wars. And I know because I'm one of the people who has been very busy telling it. And in this version, the schools and the people in them are the innocents going about their business. And then the right goes nuts, seeing indoctrination everywhere. And here we are today. It will not surprise you to learn that Johan has some issues with this version of events because it paints the education establishment as both powerless and neutral. The right has a lot of power. If by right, we mean Republicans. They run a lot of state houses. But I think we should never pretend that the people who control the schools and universities don't have power. Yes, the world of educators is diverse. But there is a kind of educational establishment. There is a kind of understanding of social justice that would make it very hard, for example, for a Christian Republican to decide that my goal is to become a math teacher and to get into many ed schools, or at least to convey that they share the values of those ed schools. So there is power in controlling major educational and cultural institutions. 
Take, for example, critical race theory, which, as you've no doubt heard, is not taught in schools. So one of the things that frustrates me, for example, is when I read the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they're constantly saying, CRT is a theory taught in graduate seminars and has no impact on the schools. And I'm like, just look at an ed school curriculum. Just look at Ibram Kendi's own words. And Ibram Kendi has created an empire for elementary, middle, and high school. Of course, CRT is being taught. Why pretend otherwise? You may want it to be taught, but don't deny that CRT and kindred ideas are shaping the curriculum that is the public schools are teaching. Look at the documents that are coming out to describe DEI policy. Of course, behind that are some of these theories. They may not be being taught in the sense that, like, I'm not teaching, a, you know, a seminar on Marxism, but that doesn't mean none of these ideas have filtered out in ways that are shaping our discourse. Johan sees something similar happening with the library wars. Framing the conflict as being solely about right-wing book banners ignores that this is essentially a political battle. We're not talking about librarians as truth-tellers versus right-wing people like DeSantis. We're talking about librarians, many of whom have been trained by education schools, to be kind of social justice collections developers, to highlight certain things, to purposefully purchase things for the collections that reflect a particular political perspective. And so we have to also be honest, again, that we're talking about a political conflict between school librarians who have been trained in certain kind of activist ways and right-wing parents and politicians like DeSantis who really oppose this approach. And if we're more honest about that, then we can start to step back and say, what are the conflicts? I think when the left is not honest about those things, we open ourselves to not only the extreme kind of red meat that DeSantis throws out, but we also open ourselves to not being trusted because I think parents, especially conservative parents, but as a parent myself in a liberal school district, I see every day things DeSantis says happening on the ground. I don't think the people are doing it on the ground without integrity without honesty, without commitment, without hard work. I'm not saying these are bad people doing it, but I see the things DeSantis is talking about happening every day in my schools. I may like it, I may not like it, but it's happening. And if we're not honest, then we're denying what a lot of parents see right in front of them every day. I'm just going to drag us back for a second to your interpretation of history that you were offering there, because one of the things that I think, Johan, is that even if we disagree with you, in your interpretation of history, right? There's good, there's bad, there's both. We can still be pragmatists around how the schools should operate because the story that you're telling us, both in your book and in a lot of your writing as well as here today on the show, it's a story about the importance of buy-in, about the importance of all stakeholders seeing the project of public education as worth sustaining. And we're naive if we think that we can vanquish our ideological opponents and then still have common schools, right? I think that's one of the arguments that you make in various places. And it's something that we often have just sort of completely skipped over on this show. And I think that's why it's such an important idea to consider, right? That doesn't mean that there aren't racists seeking to influence the curriculum or people seeking to strip LGBTQ kids or rights or families trying to get evangelical Christian teachings into the schools, right? There are, and they should be opposed. But it does mean that the project of the left in winning right, in winning the curriculum, in winning teacher practice, in winning school policy, actually risks making public schools even more fragile. I think that's absolutely right. When someone like me, who believes so deeply in the public 
school project finds the ways in which that project can be alienating. And I imagine how someone more conservative than me would feel. And I've even talked to parents more conservative who feel the public schools seem to celebrate X, but either never celebrate Y or always tell us Y is bad, right? And why would you want your child sent to a school where they learn that to be white or to be Christian is bad? And you start to feel like these aren't institutions where the socialization, I imagine, is going on. Now, the thing I want to be clear about is socialization happens to all people, native-born, immigrant, of all skin colors and all politics. So the flip side of that is conservatives don't get to win this either, right? Like it's not just that conservatives therefore get what they want. The public schools teach in a conflicted way, shared values, shared histories, shared culture. What that is, we fight over and argue over and it changes over time. But it means that my children are exposed to all kinds of things that as personally, both as a historian and as a parent and as someone with politics, I disagree with. I still send my children there. I still believe the community has both the right and the responsibility to play a role in the socialization of my children. Way back at the beginning of this episode, we talked about how Johann's terrific book, Democracy Schools, was motivated in part by his concern that privatization was going to eat the common school. Well, fast forward to the present, and he sees a much more dire threat. If public schools come to be seen rightly or wrongly, but I think there's some truth to it, as partisan cells, a large part of the voters will no longer see any reason to push back against privatization policies. And if we privatize in the way that the devices of the world want, what we're really talking about is conservative evangelicals go to conservative evangelical schools. Liberals go to liberal schools. In other words, this complex, messy process that I'm talking about where we find the common ground and we educate in common and we learn that there are people who disagree with us, but also that we can share a lot, will be lost to us. In fact, it isn't hard for him to imagine a scenario whereby defund the schools becomes a rallying cry on the right. Imagine there's a bureaucracy with state-level authority and local autonomy that you've been trying to you know, reform for decades so they match a little bit better with your values. You see it getting out of control and in fact getting farther from those values and you feel like you have no control over it anymore and, and internal reform is not working. What are you going to say? Defund the schools. So there's a way if we step back, what we, you, me, others may value specifically, we can see a kind of political or public policy reality by looking at a case study we on the left are more familiar with, which is policing. And why some on the right might be moving to that position in schooling. And I think that's really dangerous because if that argument starts winning the day, we lose our public schools. So that's the practical argument that public schools are part of our society and culture. If they really are countercultural institutions, if they really are re socializing rather than socializing, if they really come to be seen as extremes, they'll lose popular support. We can't just pretend conservatives are not welcome in public schools. Like That just can't be the modus operandi of a public institution, a civic institution. It just can't be. No, I read a lot of right-wing critiques of public education. I even own my very own copy of Pete Hegseth's book, Battle for the American Mind. And there's a particular feeling of disorientation that I often get when I read the claims that are being made about our schools, say, molding a generation of Marxist revolutionaries. Because for as long as I can remember, and as we opine about endlessly on this program, it's the business community that has really succeeded in shaping our schools and defining what they're for. 
Common Core anybody? As far as I know, preparing every child for college and career is not a Marxist slogan. But Johan says that it's key to understand that the Common Core and its focus on skills was essentially a compromise after the last round of school culture wars. The Common Core emerges out of the failure of the earlier standards movement, where there were going to be robust history and English and math and other subject area standards, right? And then we couldn't agree. And then the Common Core fills that vacuum because it's the lowest common denominator. Who doesn't want their kids to be educated workers? Who doesn't want their kids to develop skills? It basically took all the richness of a liberal arts education and took it away and let the business people say, this is what we want. I don't mean to suggest that the prior standards weren't biased. They reflected the values of professors. The Common Core reflected the values of the business leaders. What is interesting right now over the culture wars is that to the extent that culture is a public good and socialization is one of the fundamental functions of education in a society, we're fighting over a public good again. We're fighting over something that matters publicly, that the right has seen that K-12 schools and universities really do matter. And what they teach does matter. And the content of what they teach does matter. If we can't provide or agree on some way to teach American history, then we won't teach it. And instead, we'll have this kind of skills-based model where everyone says content doesn't matter, learning about subject area doesn't matter. What matters is a set of abstracted skills. Today, we are essentially relitigating that original argument. Johan says that in some ways, that's progress. We're talking and disagreeing deeply about the content of what schools teach. The danger is that unlike during the Clinton-era history wars, a much broader segment of the population now views our public education system as partisan. And that is a big problem. I think, if anything, the revival of the culture war suggests we're going beyond the Common Core model to once again start to care what is in the AP African-American Studies curriculum. Do we want to require ethnic studies for all people or do we want to require a class on constitutional foundations? And that's really about going back to what we want taught. And so we're starting to re-engage with curriculum, not just as an imparting of generic skills that don't exist. And in a diverse society with lots of people with different values and backgrounds, that's no easy task. But it is the task before us. And if public school leaders and teachers and advocates like me don't acknowledge that in many ways the public schools have come to seem like partisan institutions and that there is more consensus and among the educational establishment that is at odds with the ideals and values of a lot of Americans and not just people who are racist or homophobic, a broad swath of Americans, that's a problem. That was Johan Neem. He's the author of, among other books, Democracy Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America. Definitely check it out. And Jack and I will be right back to wrap things up and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Was our guest right? Is our approach to the school culture wars all wrong? If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter.
Well, Jack, you mentioned uh, way back at the beginning of this episode that there were things that Johan said that, that you didn't agree with. And ordinarily, this is the time in the program where we would sort of hash that out. But people will probably have noticed that they've been listening to us for a while. So I'm going to suggest <laughs> that we actually break with protocol and that we head into the weeds to do our response to no- Johan, because I know that I am having some very strong opinions and I, I need to get them out in the comfort and security of the weeds. Just in case Johan is not a Patreon member, I will say, Johan, have no fear. Uh, we're, we're with you. Uh, we're not going to enter into the the secret place that is the weeds and say, can you believe that guy? Um, I think for me, I just really need to think through like how much have I moved from where I was at the beginning of our conversation in terms of believing that what we need right now is a kind of radical, uh, you know, nearly militant defense of public education that is very confrontational in nature. Uh, I can see, Jennifer, you're like, please stop. This is what we're talking about in the weeds. But Johan needs to hear, um, you know, am I still there or have I moved towards a place where we really need to be thinking about um, do we keep people on board with the project of public education, even if it means tempering the kind of defense that we might marshal? I do think it's really funny, though, that the only way that Johan can find out whether we're trash-talking him is to become a Patreon supporter. (laughs) And Johan, if you're still listening, if that intrigues you, all you have to do is go to (laughs) patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast and become a supporter. Here's how it works. Our loyal listeners pony up just a few dollars every month, and then in exchange for that, it is transactional. They get things like a custom reading list. Johan, you will be very well represented on that reading list this time around, and they get to join us in the weeds. And that's where Jack and I just sort of hold forth in a, like, we we kind of think out loud. And, and I think we've grown to love these conversations because we don't always know where we're going to end up. And our topic today is basically, like, are we down with this idea that we're doing the culture war wrong? Are we going to do things differently as a result of our conversation? So if that intrigues you, Johan, and the broader world, just head over to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. Johan, if you think it's a little weird to be charged for being a guest on a podcast, then you can do what other members of this democratic community do. And that's stop listening right now. Enjoy the free Open source? No, it's not open source. I don't think, well, I mean, I guess it could be. That's a future episode, our AI episode. Uh, Then, you know, make sure that you're a subscriber so you always get the latest episode when it drops. Give us a review. Johan, give us a review. Uh, Make sure to say that your favorite episode is the one with you on it. And uh, let people know that this is your favorite education podcast. You can also do that uh, on the socials. Right now we're still on Twitter at Have You Heard Pod. And I think I think that's it. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs> <laughs>